The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is, of course, Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest, he's a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father, how are you? Very fine, thank you, Tom, and yourself? Great, Father, doing great. Very good to see you. Yep, absolutely. <clears throat> we have um, many emails that we'd like to get to tonight, Father. Uh, but first, we wanted to begin with a current event, um, something that's been in the news a bit lately, um, <clears throat> is the, uh, the, the Vatican's uh, fifth annual uh, International Vatican Conference titled Exploring the Mind, Body, and Soul, Unite to Prevent and Unite to Cure. Um, this event, Father, will apparently focus on, quote, how innovation and novel delivery systems improve human health. Uh, among the more than 100 speakers listed on the website are Dr. Anthony Fauci, the CEOs of Moderna and Pfizer. Uh, we have Chelsea Clinton, New Age Alternative Medicine Advocate Deepak Chopra. We have Cindy Crawford, Aerosmith's Joe Perry, and Carrie Kennedy, among others. So, uh, Father, do you have any, uh, any reaction to this Fifth International Vatican Conference on uh, exploring the mind, body, and soul? Any reaction to that? And the speakers? I think it's another manifestation of the apostasy, of the great apostasy going on uh, in the Vatican, led by Francis, um, to convoke, well, it's actually virtual, not virtuous, but virtual, uh, where there will be a hundred such contributors, speakers, uh, lending their wisdom. Uh, I think Chelsea Clinton is going to uh, uh, lecture us all on the, the soul, the health and the soul. Uh, that should be very enlightening. Right? And um, all, most, if not all, of them are pro-abortion. And um, I don't know that any of them have the Catholic faith. Right. Any of them, uh, even those who consider themselves Catholic. I don't know that any of them actually have the Catholic faith, profess the Catholic faith, live the Catholic faith, including Francis. Um, so I think this is just another uh, modernist travesty of uh, Francis taking uh, the shell of, you know, what with Catholicism, or what he's uh, basically um, purporting to be Catholicism, taking it down the road of the New World Order, and uh, especially the New Religious Order. Um, in fact, he is the key to bringing the two of them together. The, the New Religion, uh, basically giving the New World Order its religion, and uh, making a kind of religion out of it, okay? Well, modernism, and... Um, you know, Dr. Anthony Fauci, a fallen away Catholic, now considers himself to be a humanist, but also has announced uh, the, 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 I have a hard time, I can't call it an administration, 
And at first I was referring to it as, as the regime. But now I see it as nothing but a gang. It's nothing but a gang, actually. Um, and uh, as someone recently commented, the, the entire Democratic Party uh, seems to take on the character of a, of a crime syndicate. And uh, I can see his point. Um, but basically, this is, this is the gang uh, that Francis is in with. And he's very prominent in this gang. And uh, the whole point is to take the world and its peoples uh, into a very bad place. Right? This is a step in that direction. To kind of canonize modern so-called health care, which is going to be all-encompassing. It's going to include the, the body and the mind and the soul. And they're going to address the health of all three of these things in their own way. And it's not going to be, it's not going to be a good thing. It's certainly not going to be Catholic. Uh, this is going to take place, by the way, May 6th through 8th. So it's, it's coming up very quickly. And uh, again, it will be a bunch of talking heads uh, basically gushing about each other and what they're contributing to humanity. But uh, anyway, it's, 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 it's an evil thing. Okay, the first thing that occurred to me is, this is evil. Um, and it's meant to be a, 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 a step, basically, toward um, just uh, bringing the evil uh, into the world more and more forcefully and inducing more and more control. Okay. So anyway, since you asked, might as well uh, answer your question. This is okay. what I think it is, and this, I'm convinced that this is what it is. Right. By the way, <laughs> interestingly enough, uh, among the contributors to this whole event are the Mormons. Uh, the Mormons have uh, actually made great inroads with uh, Francis. He's met with Mormon representatives in the Vatican. And, you know, this should not be surprising because... After all, Mormonism talks about the deific deification of man, uh, that human beings are basically gods, uh, on our way to be gods, right? The god, who, the god of this world was a mere mortal human being who became a god, as those who are faithful to Mormonism and recognize the truth of it uh, are going to be gods of their own worlds. This is pure, well, if there is such a thing, this is out-and-out out Gnosticism, okay? This is a modern manifestation of Gnosticism. One, one doesn't know what I'm talking about, let him go look it up. G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M. This is the age-old heresy that started in the garden with the first temptation of Lucifer to Eve. To be your own gods. Recognize that you are gods. Recognize your own divinity. This is the gnosis, the knowledge that brings you salvation. <clears throat> and so, um, this is what we're dealing with, with Mormonism. It doesn't surprise me that the Mormons and the modernists would get together, because they're both forms of Gnosticism. The deification of men, perhaps the leading uh, representative of that in the 1900s was a man named Tara de Chardin. And I think you might have a, a question about him. It seems to me I heard something about uh, a, a writer 
a reader or a viewer sending in a question uh, about that individual yes. and ties in very well with uh, this this whole subject and now a kind of alliance between Mormonism and uh, modernism in mm -hmm. in the Vatican. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, uh, we did receive that question, Father. I can read it for you here. Um, since this ties in with what you're saying, he says, uh, he, he says, thank you for your recent program uh, where you explained Gnosticism. He says, most, most Catholics don't realize the influence of uh, such, such Gnostics as Teilhard de Chardin uh, on the direction the Church took after Vatican II. Several conciliar popes even praised the theologians promoting Gnosticism. Uh, he says that, uh, or he asked Father if you could just go into a bit more, um, a, a bit more depth about Terre de Chardin and his influence on, on the Novus Ordo Church. He says that the details of his beliefs are rather, rather shocking, and they explain what's been going on in the Church since Vatican II. Well, anyone who's familiar with uh, the writings, the thought of Terre de Chardin knows that he was really a kind of an ecclesiastical charlatan, really, um, a Gnostic through and through someone who believed in the evolution of the universe and were evolving toward the cosmic Christ, as he referred to it. Uh, there are quite a number of books about his writings. Uh, some, well, he has quite a number of writings to begin with. And then there are books that praise him. They're all modernist and books that uh, condemn his thought as apostasy and bringing about, again, a new world religion. <laughs> Teilhard de Chardin was a Jesuit. And uh, certainly, I would say Francis is in his, um, is certainly in the lineage, mentally, quote-unquote, spiritually, of Terre de Chardin. In fact, I would say um, Terre de Chardin embodied the very ideas condemned by St. Pius X in Pashendi, uh, the ideas of the modernists, and Francis has taken the principles of Théâtre Chardin to, um, well, I, one might even say their final level, where he's, where he's taking the, the poor, captive, New Order people in the name of Reformed Catholicism, right? Um, de Chardin uh, became famous uh, in his exploration of evolution. He wanted to establish evolution as not just a hypothesis or a theory, but he wanted to establish the fact that he even went to China on some archaeological digs looking for, you know, evidence, uh, forensic evidence, I guess we call it these days, of evolution by digging up uh, um, uh, skeletons in China. And he became famous uh, for fraud. Uh, he became famous for fraud in falsifying a uh, skull and a linked with a I think a, a, a jawbone of an ape and uh, it it became uh, a co-celebre for the pro-evolutionists for a while until it was proven beyond a shadow of doubt that, that it was a fraud not to be deterred though as all leftists he simply went on from one lie to another and his idea is that uh, the world is undergoing not only a physical evolution, material evolution, but a spiritual evolution too. And uh, as I say, we're, we're all evolving into the cosmic Christ. It all has a very, um, is very deeply rooted in Gnosticism. 
there are a lot of theories that uh, a lot of a lot of I, I can't even call them theories. They're more mythology. There's a lot of mythologies. One thing about Gnosticism, if, if one goes to the um, this site of this so-called Stefan uh, Hüller, the bishop, the Gnostic bishop we talked about last time, mm -hmm. and reads through the worldview of Gnosticism, one sees that um, there is a, a journey we're all on until we finally, each and every one of us, finally will come to recognize his own divinity. But uh, one sees in the, uh, in the process, because it is a process, and an evolutionary process of Gnosticism, a kind of spiritual evolution, uh, one, one recognizes very move, serious movements in history. And uh, I mentioned uh, just recently uh, Mormonism, an example of that. But the New Age movement, the New Age movement, so-called, uh, you know, 20 years ago, and still going on in other ways, and the, the age of Aquarius, uh, and so on, all of that is part of this evolutionary idea of uh, the human race's evolution. But it, it has deep roots. For example, one of the great writings of St. Thomas Aquinas is the Summa Contra Gentiles, and the Summa Contra Gentiles is actually largely an answer of St. Thomas Aquinas against the errors of Avicenna and Averroes, who were two, two Muslim philosophers. They had inherited the uh, philosophy of Aristotle, and they had deformed it. Remember, I mean, the Muslims conquered Greece, right? They conquered that part of the world, and uh, they claimed somehow their lineage from, uh, their, the lineage of their thought, uh, largely from Aristotle, which is why in the West we were very suspect, we were very suspicious of the thought of Aristotle, even up to the time of St. Thomas Aquinas, because it had been filtered through the minds of these Muslim philosophers. And one of the great errors that they proposed was that uh, the... The intellect, the human mind, well, I have to explain this here, there's an agent intellect and a passive intellect. Now, Aristotle did make that distinction, but their idea was that each one of us has his own personal agent intellect, but there is, and that agent intellect is to gather information from the world around us. Okay, so we're like sensors or probes in the world around us. But we gather this information and we send it to a passive intellect, which is the recipient of all of this knowledge that each one of us gains and each the put input of each one of us. And it all gathers in this great passive intellect in the sky. And this gigantic passive intellect in the sky, which is using us basically to gather all of its information, is kind of growing and growing and growing in knowledge, not only of the world, but of itself. It's gaining more and more knowledge of itself. And this was very much like pantheism, as though we are in the world as kind of feelers of God, and we're sending information to the divine intellect, so God can finally know more and more who he is through us, gathering all this data and all this information, until he finally comes into his own. And uh, 
This is a pantheistic idea, which is very dangerous, of course. But again, the Gnosticism involved, the Gnostic idea that you and I are like feelers of God out here in the world, trying to figure out who God is from the creation and kind of sending the word back to headquarters, the, the passive intellect, so God can, can actually see through us and hear through us, as though otherwise he'd be blind or deaf and wouldn't know his own creation. But this is actually assembling, in a sense, the knowledge of God of himself. No wonder St. Thomas Aquinas had to attack that idea. Again, he recognized it, a simple, just baked over or warmed over Gnosticism. The same heresy. In other words, it says that God did not create the world. He emanated the world. It kind of oozed out of him, and it's all part of him. And it's going to kind of all kind of be absorbed back into him again. Fundamental Gnostic ideas. <clears throat> that you are kind of an extension of God, I'm an extension of God, and we're going to be recalled um, into the, the great divine thing, whatever it is. So, in other words, Tom, um, Teilhard de Chardin was in the lineage of that way of th that kind of thinking. And he just expressed it in modern, well, at that time it was modern terminology, which was very cosmic <clears throat> and the latest, greatest thing. But it all comes down to the same fundamental Gnostic error that uh, you and I are extensions of God and the divine sparks of God that are here for us for some mission and we have to escape from this evil world uh, by the knowledge that we are God and break out of this world and, and break even out of a chain of being reincarnated here by recognizing the gnosis the knowledge that we are God father what, what is the difference uh, I seem you were asked between uh, these Gnostic occultists and uh, some of the great Catholic mystic saints like St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross. What is, what is the difference between them? Well, the, uh, the Catholic saints, okay, recognize creation. They realize there's one true God who has revealed himself to be three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, from all eternity, and uh, that he has created the world by the power of his will, bringing it into existence out of nothing. That's very different from the Gnostic idea that God just sort of uh, emanated out from himself all of these, well, we can't even call them creatures, they're emanations of God. And in that sense, they're extensions of God himself. And as they emanate or kind of ooze out of God, they become less and less divine and become less and less perfect. But they're nonetheless extensions of God. And they are all going to be recalled at some point, okay? Uh, they have no real destiny or purpose outside of themselves except as part of God. <clears throat> the, uh, the difference between emanation and creation is the difference between basically uh, paganism, Gnosticism on the one hand, and true Christianity on the other. Um, and so whenever you talk to Gnostics, whether it be Terre de Chardin, whether it be the Albigensians in, in the 1200s or the 1100s in France, whether it be Manes and his group, you know, 300 years before Christ, you always have the same idea. Well, Aristotle, I must say, as a pagan thinker, had this idea, not of creation, 
which was beyond his ability to contemplate, but by emanation. He was trying to explain the world's existence as emanation from God, that God had basically spread out, right? And now he was going to call everything back in at some point. Um, so you find it in, in the pagan thought even of Aristotle. Um, but the, um, the Catholic writers recognize that we are created by God as an act of the divine will because of his love for us. Even before we existed, God knew us, right? And he created us as an act of intelligence and love. He's not just some sort of a gigantic um, blob spreading out like a stain. Uh, and um, even Stephen Huller, Huller, in writing about the divine, talks. he says, him or it. In other words, when you talk about an it, you're talking about something which is not personal, has no intelligence or will. To emanate, you don't need intelligence or will, you're just basically spread out. You know, it's, um, it's not a decision you make, it's you. Um, but when you create, you have to have intelligence and will, because you have to know truth and love goodness, and you have to know it in, in a divine mind, infinitely, infinitely powerful divine mind an infinitely powered, powerful divine will to create. So the very concept of God is totally different between the concept of emanation of the Gnostics and the concept of creation of the Christians. And that is very clear in the writings of the great saints of the Church. They realize that they are, in praying to God, praying to an infinitely powerful intellect who knows truth and knows them perfectly, wills them into existence by the power of its almighty will, <clears throat> loves them with a, a, a love which is inconceivable to us, so far beyond our power, not only of loving, but even of conceiving of such a love, and that God created us for a purpose, <clears throat> and that is not to be him, not to be, as it were, a fingernail or a hangnail, you know, um, on him, or a hair on his head, or anything like that, but created us to be who we are, personally, as a reflection, created us in his, in his image, and by grace, even raising us to the level of an adopted child of God and sharing his own divine life with us. This is a totally different concept than mere mindless emanation and, by the way, evolution. Evolution and emanation go perfectly together. Which is why whenever you start going into the evolutionary realm, you're actually going into the Gnostic realm of emanation, of God. The two of them fit, fit perfectly together. So the, the Catholic saints um, start from the, the, not the viewpoint of pride and arrogance, that I am a spark of God and I must know that I am a spark of God. I must defy the evil creator of this creation, of this, of, well, the emanator of this world who has basically produced this as a prison for me. I must defy him, and I must bust out of this uh, universe, this material universe, in defiance of the dummy urge. This is all pride. It's all pride and arrogance. And furthermore, 
uh, as uh, Stephen Stefan Heller, Hiller, the uh, the um, Gnostic bishop says, I see that of the three levels of humanity, the materialists and the moralists, the, the religionists, and the spiritualists, I have come to the level of the spiritual in knowing my own divinity. So I'm ready to move on to follow my destiny as spark of God. It's all based on arrogance and pride, just as was the temptation of Lucifer in the garden. All based on arrogance and pride. And um, you look at the Catholic writers, it is all based on humility, a recognition that we are actually nothing unto ourselves, but that God has given us existence and uh, given us the power to know him and to love him and invited us to share his life, even as his adopted children by grace. This, this is approaching everything from exactly the opposite angle, of, and that is that of humility and gratitude. And um, the, uh, the Gnostics, for example, claim that salvation is not from our sin, but from the Creator, from the world's sin, okay? And that salvation is not by virtue or following uh, the commandments, but salvation is by recognizing that we are God and we are not subject. And we are not subject. We are ma we're the masters. We're not the subjects by right. Again, completely pride. Um, and the Catholic writers, again, tell us it is not by acknowledging our own divinity that we are saved, but rather humbly recognizing the fact that we're creatures, that we come from nothing, <laughs> but the will of God is an expression of his love, and that we are totally dependent upon him, and that salvation comes from submitting to him, and, and well, what's the answer? Why did God make you? God made me to know him, to love him, and to serve him in this world so as to be happy with him in the next. The Gnostic answer, and all of the forms of Gnosticism, rewrite that. Say, <clears throat> I create myself, I recognize my own divinity, to know myself, to love myself, and to serve myself, so that I may escape this world and realize that, not only realize here, in, in uh, potency or in principle that I'm God, but become God. And Father, you're, you're saying that the Novus Ordo espouses all of all of these or uh, all of these beliefs. That we can <clears throat> I'm saying that. this is where modernism leads. Yeah. If you read that uh, worldview, and maybe you did after the last program, I don't know. Some of it, yes. Okay. <laughs> if you read that worldview, when he comes to talking about human beings, he's talking about experience, the experience, the experience. That's a fundamental concept of modernism. But Pius X stresses that, that <clears throat> instead of actual faith, what we know as Catholics as faith, the modernists substitute an experience of the divine. And Pope St. Pius X warns that in saying this, the modernist doesn't distinguish that with the divine thing that you experience is yourself, like the divine within you, or the divine outside you doesn't make that distinction. That's why St. Pius X says it leads to pantheism, seeing that God is in everything, that everything is sort of a part of God, including myself. So I experience that. 
If you read what Heller says there, it's very interesting because it coincides perfectly with the doctrine of the modernists. And what, what Hitler, by the way, if I may uh, issue uh, forth a little bit, <laughs> I'm not trying not to emanate uh, Hitler's view on this, but the point is, he says it's not only a group experience, it's an individual experience. That the individual has an experience of the divine, and he has basically his own religion, his own Gnosticism, his own personal knowledge of his divinity, but but nonetheless, he does share that with others. This is exactly the concept of modernist faith that St. Pius X points out, explains, and then condemns. It's actually not faith at all. It's anti-faith. It's the result not of a God revealing a supernatural truth, which our intellects then accept on the authority of God revealing. It is something that you have to experience for yourself individually, to be convinced of it. And it's a result of your own religious sentiment that this actually occurs. Um, so, um, what we might even call an emotion. That that is the source of and the foundation of your faith. An emotional experience. Yeah. So anyway, I, I don't know if that answers your question, but at least uh, I made a attempt. Well, Father, uh, we, we had another email, perhaps we could tie this this one in, um, talking about the no, the Novus Ordo. Um, this, this viewer says, well, he asked, what should an unbaptized person who is doing RCIA and the Novus Ordo, um, what should they do if they start having doubts about Vatican II? He says, what if they are confused about the alternatives to the Novus Ordo Church? He asks, is, is it more important to get baptized now than it is to get taught the faith without heresy? What would you recommend? Well, if one is confused about the alternatives to the Novus Ordo Church, I'm not sure what he means by that. Is he talking about Mormonism? Is that an alternative? Is he talking about atheism? Is he talking about Buddhism? I don't know what he means by that. Alternatives. Because I would think if one is a Catholic, the only alternative to the Novus Ordo Church is the traditional Catholic faith and its practice, the traditional Catholic religion. So I would say in this case, uh, and in every case like this, it is certainly not the way to go if you if you believe that the uh, Vatican II, the, the religious thing that came out of Vatican II, which we now know as the, the New Order, if that is not Catholic, then if you want to be Catholic, don't go near it. Get away from it. Get as far away from it as you can. Don't get baptized in it. That would be a lie. Okay? It would be basically a lie against the Holy Ghost, frankly. Um, I mean, some might even argue, well, you know, the, Novus, the new rite of baptism still maintains essentially the, funda the, the form of the sacrament of baptism. I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen, they say. And also they pour the water, so I could be validly baptized in the Novus Ordo. Gentlemen might think that. But he's making a mistake in thinking that that's a good thing. I mean, to join a false religion because I can still get a valid sacrament there. Uh, I mean, the church has recognized that 
Lutherans and Presbyterians and Congregationalists, the church even recognizes that someone who has no belief could validly baptize as long as they perform the sacrament, the matter and the form, with the intention of doing what the church does in performing that sacrament, right. even if they don't know what it is, that that would still be valid. The church doesn't say that's the way to be baptized, though. Um, but one also cannot overlook the fact of the changes in the rite of baptism that uh, were very bad. I mean, even if uh, it's still recognized as being valid in itself, that is to say, the matter and the form, as they are on the books in the Novus Ordo, uh, can be valid if the right intention is there, and that's another question, then uh, that's enough. Paul VI personally apologized for the change, one of, for one of the changes in the new rite of baptism. He actually came out on record and personally apologized for having taken the prayers of exorcism out of the rite of baptism. There are four prayers of exorcism. In the, in the rite of baptism for children. And uh, Paul VI uh, apologized. They were removed. But he never put them back in. He said it was a mistake to remove them. But he never restored them. Curious, what? And, uh, you know, when you think about baptism of a child, you think of prayers of exorcism. Why would you exorcise a child? Well, the child's born with original sin. To that extent, Satan has a certain power over the child. And those prayers are basically commands to the devil to leave this child alone because the child doesn't belong to him. It's kind of pushing Satan back and ordering Satan to stay away from this child. Um, so when you hear during the rite of baptism of children, you know, the words exorcizo, I exercise you. This is a command of the devil to stay away from this child because the child belongs to God. And when the water of baptism is poured and God adopts that child by grace as his own, then that is truly a child of God now. Not just born of mortal, sinful human beings who are his parents, but actually born of God with a divine life in the soul. So it makes perfect sense that the church would command Satan to get away from that child, even as the church is about to pour the water of baptism over the child's head. By the way, in the early days of the church, the vast majority of those who were baptized originally were adults. And uh, they, were, they were Jews initially, and uh, <clears throat> pagans, of course, as you know, Gentiles, who had worshipped in the pagan temples. And so in the early days of the church, the church actually had converts, especially from paganism, undergo 40 consecutive days of exorcism before they could be baptized to deliver them from this evil influence of what was really satanic worship. The gods of the Gentiles, pagans, are devils, we read in sacred scripture. <laughs> and so to free them from that influence, there were 40 consecutive days of exorcism prior to them receiving the grace of baptism, receiving the water of baptism. Wow. So, anyway. So, uh, practically speaking, you would... I would not recommend... I would tell this gentleman, please do not, do not get yourself baptized in Evasorno. Mm. But the only real alternative, if you, any, the only way to be Catholic here is to practice the traditional Catholic faith. There's nothing, there's no other Catholicism but traditional Catholicism because the Church uh, says that the Holy Ghost guides the Church through, through the ages and there, that is uh, the very source of her tradition. 
This is the work of the Holy Ghost. You can't have Catholicism without that. And so I would tell them, you have to believe the traditional Catholic faith and you have to practice the traditional Catholic religion, including the Mass and the sacraments and all the other practices that the Church has sanctioned, uh, saying are necessary for you to be a Catholic, practicing Catholic. Uh, to do otherwise would be just to basically pretend uh, <clears throat> pretend that you're being Catholic. So, uh, as I say, I don't know what the gentleman means by uh, alternatives to the Novus Ordo, but really when it comes down to being Catholic, the Novus Ordo itself is not an alternative. Right. Only the traditional Catholic faith and religion can make one Catholic. Uh, well, here's another question for you, Father. Uh, Spewer asks, why don't priests regularly do healings anymore? Our Lord told the apostle to heal diseases and cast out devils. Some priests still cast out devils, but almost no one heals diseases anymore. It was common in the early church, but is it just that priests these days don't believe that they can do it, so they don't even bother to try? Well, I think priests today know they can't do it because uh, they can't do it, because it's not... <laughs> Uh, it's it's a divine power of a miracle, right? So no priest has uh, in, within himself the power of miracles. Is calling upon God to work the miracle. If he's asking why priests do not call upon God to work miracles, well, he, uh, that's not true. Priests do, actually. And I'll explain it this way. The, the, um, in the early church, uh, when our Lord sent forth his apostles, he said that they would work such miracles, uh, that they could drink poison and it wouldn't hurt them, that they could be even handling deadly snakes and be bitten by them and it wouldn't hurt them, uh, that they could they would heal the sick. And, and our Lord even, uh, in a sense, indicated that they could raise the dead to life. Right? But um, St. But Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, what we know as chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, that these are charisms, they're gifts given, and the reason why these miraculous powers are given are, well, basically for the same reason that our Lord worked miracles. Um, if our Lord gave the apostles the power of working miracles, and we want to understand why and what they were to do with them, we'd have to look at our Lord's own example. When our Lord worked miracles, he didn't just work miracles for worldly purposes. When our Lord took the thousands of people out into the wilderness and taught them, and he multiplied the loaves and the fishes, it wasn't just to take a bunch of people out for dinner. Uh, you'd have to talk to the Novus Ordo if that's what you wanted to, the argument you wanted to make. Our Lord was performing the basis uh, of a of, uh, by that miracle of the teaching of the very next day that he would give his own body and blood for their food and drink that he is the living bread that has come down from heaven. Remember, after our Lord worked that miracle, they wanted to take him and make him their king. Make him their king. <clears throat> our Lord didn't come for that. He disappeared. The next day, he was asking more of that them than that. The next day, he was asking them not only to make him king, but when he promised, when he told them that he was the living bread that had come down from heaven, and said that if anyone ate of him, they would not die forever. And then he said, I am the living bread. Anyone who eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood has life in him. And anyone who does not, does not have life in him. 
Read St. John's Gospel, chapter 6. Our Lord makes it very clear. He was very, very definite about that, so much so that the people who heard him saw no alternative but either to accept what he said or walk away. And most of them, by far, walked away. Our Lord even invited the apostles to walk away. This is the teaching of our Lord with regard to the real presence, his real presence in the Blessed Sacrament, the Holy Eucharist. So that miracle was worked for the sake of healing not the bodies or sustaining not the body, but the mind, the soul. Every miracle that our Lord worked was for the sake of healing the human soul. He brought the dead back to life. Why? Because he wanted to give eternal life to the human soul. <clears throat> All of those our Lord raised from the dead eventually died. His purpose was to give life to the human soul. The miracles that he worked were for the sake of the salvation of the human soul, giving us not life for a day or life for a year or a decade, but giving us everlasting life, everything. And so it is with the apostles. Our Lord gave them the power of miracles for the sake of converting souls to believe that he, Jesus Christ, had the power of giving everlasting life. So much so that those who came to believe by the power of the miracles the apostles worked believed so firmly that they were willing to forfeit their lives with confidence that our Lord Jesus Christ could give them everlasting life. They are willing, as it were, to trade in their earthly lives for the sake of everlasting life. They were so convinced. This is the power of the miracles that our Lord gave the apostles to work. And again, for the same reason that he did, and not for the sake of just some earthly advantage or some earthly benefit, as Francis seemingly would have it now, to create some kind of a nice, happy life on earth. It's much more than that. And so St. Paul says in uh, the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians, uh, he talks about these gifts of prophecy and healing and all the rest. Tongues, he mentions them. But he says, essentially, these things cannot save your soul. And the very last verse of that, what we know as chapter 12 is, but I will show you the greater gifts. And then we turn the page, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and he's talking about faith and hope and charity. And he starts out right away by saying, if I should have all faith, if I should have all prophecy, and know all knowledge, and all faith, so that I could remove mountains, and have not charity, I'm nothing. And if I should distribute all my goods to feed the poor and deliver my body to be burned, martyrdom. But without charity, it profits me nothing. It's worthless. <clears throat> so St. Paul, uh, talking about the greatest works are worthless without charity and, the, and the, the greatest gifts of prophecy and all the rest, even faith itself without charity accomplishes nothing. So there you have the... Uh, this point that all of these charisms or these gifts to work these rather spectacular miracles are really not what our Lord came to do for us and came to give us, but he came to give us the, the virtues of faith, hope, and charity and the life of grace in the soul that is our share in the divine life. So the Church has always understood this. I mean, you go back to the time of St. Gregory the Great, he talks about this. He talks about how these miracles were given for the sake of engendering faith, of conveying faith to the soul, not just healing the body, but healing the soul. And so, um, these were motives of faith. Our Lord himself said so. 
He said, if you do not believe me, at least believe for the miracle's sake, for the sake of the miracles that you've seen. Believe these things. That what I'm saying is the truth. That what I'm saying really are the words of the Father. So, coming to our own day, has, has our Lord actually give us, given us the power of healing the sick? Well, actually, there is a sacrament, isn't there? The sacrament of extreme unction, the last anointing, for those who are actually in danger of death. And talk to any priest who has validly administered the sacrament of extreme unction, and he will tell you amazing accounts. That it not only by the power of his prayer, but by the power of the sacrament, which is Christ working through the sacrament, there are amazing accounts. Uh, and I'm not just talking about what they would call anecdotal accounts. I'm talking about medical, actual medical cases of miraculous healings that are going on through the power of the sacrament. Not only did our Lord give the power of healing to his church, but he actually, you might say, institutionalized it in the form of a sacrament. And um, any priest who's been a priest long enough to validly administer that sacrament a number of times can give you personal accounts of what they've witnessed, but also can um, direct you to medical personnel who uh, can back up what they're saying, that yes, there's something there that we can't really explain. We've also seen the miraculous healings in the past at Lourdes and other uh, great shrines of our Blessed Mother. So it's not true to say that uh, these healings, the power of healing somehow has fallen by the wayside. But if one were to ask, well, you have the power of, um, let's say I have a, a charism of healing, but as a priest, I would have the power to absolve the soul from sins, which is the greater power, by far the power of forgiving sins. Because even as our Lord's enemies recognized, only God can do that. Right? Um, so in any case, um, I would say the power of healing is still very much with us, and it's still in the traditional Catholic uh, Church and in the traditional Catholic sacraments. Mm -hmm. It is definitely there. Okay, that's great. Well, Father, we had one other topic tonight. I'm not sure if you wanted to try and quickly get through that, if you wanted to save it to our next week. It uh, uh, depends on... Uh, why don't you ask? And we'll I'll ask. It's a very uh, <clears throat> interesting email. We've had it for... Uh, a little while now, but uh, this viewer writes in and says, according to Father Kramer, the great eagle of the Apocalypse, uh, the 12th book of the Apocalypse is a nation fitting the description of the United States, which shelters the church, the woman, from the dragon's attacks. But I wonder whether Father Jenkins is aware of any traditional exegesis that identifies this eagle rather with the author himself. For St. John is figured by an eagle, and several traditional Catholic writers, including St. Thomas Aquinas, believe that he is alive in the body today. I also wonder whether anyone has asserted that he is identical to the legendary bishop king known as Prester John. Have you heard anything like this, Father? Uh, yes, I have. Yes. Yeah. There are actually several questions involved, yes. uh, such as, who is Prester John? Right? And I've heard the arguments that Prester John was actually John the Apostle, still on earth. But all of the stories of Presbyter, by the way, Presbyter is a shortened form of Presbyter, priest, right? Uh, 
<coughs> elder, as they like to say, um, if they don't like to say priest. Um, but uh, Prester or Presbyter John is the subject of a lot of uh, writings that have come down through the centuries. But uh, there's a lot of lore about him, right? He's supposedly a great king and a priest who ruled over some great, great kingdom, a fabulously wealthy kingdom, very exotic kingdom in the East. Uh, some say it was in India. <clears throat> some accounts have it in Central Asia. Uh, some even put it in Ethiopia. Uh, so it's very murky. And, um, uh, and most of the literature that we have goes back only to the early Middle Ages, like to the 1100s. So there was kind of an explosion of literature about it in the 11th, 1100s or so. So it's not well established. The, whether, the idea that it refers to a St. John the Apostle, still on earth, reigning as an earthly king priest is rather peculiar, to say the least. Um, I mean, if it were true that St. John the Apostle continued in his life and as an earthly king reigning over a fabulously wealthy kingdom, something tells me we'd have a lot more to go by than a bunch of, a bunch of very murky legends um, that are so indefinite they, they contradict one another. But it's actually somebody was suggesting that... Um, in the canon of the Mass, this Prester John is mentioned. Because after the consecration in the traditional canon of the Mass, at the prayer, nobis coge peccatoribus, you know, when the priest actually be, strikes his breast, to us sinners also, nobis coge peccatoribus, there's a list of names of saints. And the first name given is John. And some insist, well, look, <clears throat> that's Prester John. And they wanted to identify him with John the Apostle, an evangelist. But John the Apostle, an evangelist, is already named before the consecration. So it would be very, very peculiar if the church and her traditional liturgy would make a rather, a rather odd mistake of naming John the Apostle twice under two different uh, identities, right? as an apostle evangelist, and then later as a king and a priest on earth of some earthly kingdom. So I always found this to be rather peculiar, to say the least, right? Uh, I find whatever evidences there are for a Prester John to be rather um, dubious, okay? At least to identify him, at least to identify him with uh, John the Apostle. So anyway, we started with the end of that question when... And, um, but also, um, the idea that St. Thomas Aquinas thinks John the Apostle might still be alive in the world bodily, uh, well, St. Thomas Aquinas might propose this as a hypothesis, and so there was nothing contrary to it. But, um, you know, it is true that as our Lord was walking along the seashore after his resurrection with two apostles, Peter and John, he said to Peter, Peter, lovest thou me? Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And then Peter, being Peter, who always was wondering where he fit in and you know, concerned about his, his place, 
Well, our Lord had talked to Peter about feeding his lambs and feeding his sheep. And Peter then turned, uh, you know, with Jesus uh, gesturing to John and said, well, what about him? What about this man? And our Lord's answer to Peter was, you know. So I will have him remain until I come. So I will have him remain until I come. What is that to you? You simply follow me, right? And uh, so the, the now... The gospel says at that point, it actually does kind of an aside. And who's writing the gospel? John the Apostle, right? He's writing this account at the very end of his gospel. He says, the word went out among the brethren that that apostle was not going to die. But John himself said, but Jesus did not say that this apostle would not die. But simply, if I would have him remain until I come, what is that to you, Peter? You be faithful to me. That can be perfectly well understood, apart from any prophecy of our Lord that John the Apostle wasn't going to die. There was no suggestion of that. Now, there was an attempt to, um, to uh, martyr St. John, boiling him alive publicly in a huge cauldron of oil, and he not only survived it, he came out vitalized by it, right? Um, and he was sent off to uh, exile, to die in exile in Patmos, and then when um, the emperor uh, died, uh, Domitian, he was freed, and we came back to the mainland, and then wrote his gospel, finally, as the last act of his evangelistic life, right? Um, but, you know, the church has always said that public revelation closed with the death of the last apostle, and that's St. John. Mm. So the church has always recognized that St. John actually died, and public revelation came to a close when it did. I don't think St. Thomas Aquinas has any intention of contradicting that. I think what he proposes is just a thought, a thought maybe of others, not necessarily even his own. Um, now, I did ask a fine gentleman, because you had kind of uh, told me about this question beforehand, so I had sort of a um, forewarning that you might be asking this question. I asked a very fine gentleman to uh, give me his thoughts on one of the most excellent commentators on sacred scripture, who ever lived, a man named Cornelius Alapide. And this gentleman actually immediately began to translate, because he's an excellent Latinist, the words of Cornelius Alapide commenting on the, the words of the Apocalypse. You mentioned there something about St. John, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, the eagle, and so on. Well, what, what we're referring to there is the 12th chapter of the book of the Apocalypse. <clears throat> the eagle is mentioned a number of times in the book of Revelation, the book of the Apocalypse. And one of those times, perhaps the most striking, is about the woman, right, who is giving birth, and how the dragon wants to devour her child. And there's a great deal of symbolism. <clears throat> the woman crowned with the 12 stars, whether it be the child, uh, she be our lady, our blessed mother, whether she be the church, <clears throat> and the child, of course, uh, symbolizing our Lord, or bringing forth even you and me, right, by grace. 
But the dragon wants to devour the, the offspring of this woman. And at one point, we read that the woman is given wings, the wings of an eagle, to fly away into a desert place to escape the dragon. And the dragon is furious that she has escaped his grasp. And the dragon begins to rip and tear and attack the faithful because he can't destroy the woman and her offspring, her child. And so he's kind of referring, in a way, to this imagery of the eagle, saying, well, maybe this is John, because St. John actually is represented by an eagle in the prophecy, of the very first chapter of the book of the prophet Ezekiel, represents the evangelist, and the head of the eagle facing upward, right? <clears throat> but uh, if you read Father Kramer's Book of Destiny, <clears throat> he has a... I think a rather curious explanation of this, the woman given the wings to fly to safety, he says, this would seem to indicate an airplane is going to fly her away from the danger that she's in, that the church somehow is going to escape the grasp of the dragon as he's closing in on the church, in the, in the, even in the Vatican, and how uh, the, the, the Pope, the Cardinals, whoever, are going to escape by airplane to a safe place in the wilderness where the, where the dragon can't reach them. In fact, if you want to read that account, you can go to the Book of Destiny. We're looking on pages uh, 295, 296-297, which is actually the, the 12th chapter and verses uh, 12, 13, 14, and mostly 14 actually. But, as I was saying, uh, this uh, notable uh, Latinist has given us a very hasty, but I think a very, very good translation, uh, for lack of notice. And I thought I'd read that, because I think it might actually be the best response to what our fine writers is asking here. This translation from the commentary on the Book of the Apocalypse by Cornelius Alapide. And he's commenting here on verse 14. This is the translation. And there were given to the woman two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the desert. And firstly, and he refers to the writings of various fathers of the church from the early days. Primasius, he says, the eagle, he says, is a symbol of wisdom, and its two wings are the two testaments, old and new which lift us up to wisdom by teaching us. Or again, each of these two wings are one of the primary effects of sacred scripture and wisdom, namely, fear of guilt and damnation, and love of God and salvation. For this fear and love will incite the faithful to flee the persecution of Antichrist and hide away in the desert. Out of this fear and love will come forth two other acts of wisdom, which are like two wings, namely contempt for temporal things and appreciation and desire for divine and eternal things. For by these wings are spiritual men extracted from contact with terrestrial things and raised up into the sublime. They leave in persecution and give up all their goods and seek true solace in the one God. 
For it is the act and effect of wisdom to judge anything to be what it actually is, that is, to judge small to be small, great to be great, temporable, temporal to be temporal, eternal to be eternal. Hence, again, Victorinus and Taconius, these two wings will be the preachers of wisdom and truth, particularly Elias and Henoch. Well, that rings some bells, right? So, in other words, that author from ancient times is saying that the two wings actually apply to Elias and Henoch, these two personages, okay? Interesting connection there. And uh, this refers also to uh, the book of Exodus, chapter 19, verse 4. You have seen what I have done to the Egyptians, how I have carried you upon the wings of eagles, and have taken you to myself. When the people of the Hebrews escaped the pursuing Egyptians, right? Where many understand the wings of eagles to be the prophets and preachers, especially Moses and Aaron. Thus, Origen, St. Ambrose, St. Augustine, St. Hilary, St. Basil, and others, for these preachers will persuade and animate the faithful to flee into the desert and into caves. This meaning is most appropriate. For by such actions are we elevated as upon wings, above the dragon who persecutes us on earth, and we flee to God. Now, secondly, that was all firstly, he says, to give an explanation of these wings and what they might mean. He says, secondly, Ricardus, the two wings are the active life and the contemplative life. Thirdly, he says, Aretas, the two wings are the love of God and the love of our neighbor. So the two great commandments. Fourthly, Rebera, the two wings are the desire for the glory of God and the zeal for an innocent and holy life. Fifthly, Alcazar, just as the twelve stars upon the head of the woman are the twelve apostles, so the two wings are Paul and Barnabas, who adorned and instructed the primitive church, such that they brought themselves boldly into the desert of paganism, and were commanded to this and led in this by the Holy Ghost, as is said in Acts 13.2 and 46. Yet the same Alcazar confesses that this is more rhetorical than literal. He might even be indicating that the wings, in that sense, are the wings of the Holy Ghost, a great eagle raising the, the church from danger. So, but anyway... Moreover, these wings are like the wings of an eagle. Firstly, because the church flies not by compulsion, nor out of fear, but willingly and happily as an eagle, and out of love for God. Secondly, because like the eagle, she looks upon the Son of Justice, that is God, without turning away her eyes. Thirdly, because she is lifted up into the sublime by her conversation, and is not cast down by any persecution. Fourthly, because the flight of an eagle is extremely high and also very rapid, such is also the flight of the church. Fifthly, since it is said of the church, thy youth shall be renewed like the eagle's wings. That's Psalm 102, verse 5. And, but they that hope in the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall take wings as eagles. The prophet Isaiah, chapter, looks like 40, verse 31. Epiphanius, Epiphania, I'm sorry, Epiphanius disputes 
whether the Blessed Virgin truly died or whether she was wrapped into heaven as Elias and Henoch and gives scriptural testimony for both sides. For the affirmative side, that Simeon predicted that a sword would pierce her soul. For the negative side, that here the wings are said to be given to her, with which she flies into the desert. So it's actually Hephaphanius is tying the wings and the woman to Our Lady, and wings given to her as though somehow they would enable her to escape, escape death. Yet Epiphanius does not add his own true judgment on the subject, knowing indeed that nothing on this matter could be defined from either of these passages of Scripture. Now it is certain that she did die. This is what, this is what uh, uh, Cornelius Salapide says. Now it is certain that she did die, and shortly thereafter was brought back to life and ascended into heaven. For this the Church professes and celebrates on the Feast of Her Assumption. Now notice he's writing this in the 1600s and the assumption was defined in the year 1950 but it was already the faith of the church. He considers it to be already a matter of the church's faith because the church celebrated that feast. Now there is more to be said if you can bear with me just a little bit because I've read about three-fourths of it and there's only a little bit left. In commenting on these eagle's wings here, mystically, Haimo, and from him, Panonius, says this, The desert place are the hearts of the saints completely removed from these earthly desires. For they purge themselves beforehand of inordinate motions of the passions, and having fled all pleasures whatsoever, they turn themselves into a desert of quietude. For this is the desert, the flight of delicacies and all bodily pleasures whatsoever, according to which sense the just man speaks through the prophet, in a desert land and where there is no way and no water, so in the sanctuary have I come before thee to see thy power and thy glory. That's some, uh, let's see, looks like 12, verse 3. No, I'm sorry. Uh, I should say 62, verse 3. Psalm 62, verse 3. A land is a, the desert and without water, where the necessities of life are not to be had. Those who remove all carnal pleasures from themselves are made like unto deserts, where nothing is found that could even supply necessity. And he who is like this and has set up his life in such a way desires to see the virtue and glory of God continuously. For he is his only refuge and protection in all the persecutions of the world. And it is a great consolation for the just man that while he does not love the evils of this world, but only desires his eternal homeland, he will enjoy great tranquility of mind. Therefore, the desert is the renunciation of worldly pleasure. And the text also says, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. And again, Cornelius Salapide discusses this. He says, for one year, for two years, for half a year, for 42 months, he says, as is said, and then he quotes various references in the book of the Apocalypse about those 42 months. Now, 36 months is three years. Another six months gives you 42. 
So there you have three years and a half, okay? And that time is repeated over and over again in the book of the Apocalypse, as even as a time, the 1260 days of the reign of the Antichrist. So those three and a half years are very significant. And there she will be protected and nourished by God, uh, the church, that is, during this great persecution. He says, the time is given according to the year in Daniel. Then he refers to chapter 4, verse 20 and verse 29, and also chapter 7, verse 25, to which passage, passage John here alludes. Therefore, the church at the end of the world, that is, the assembly of the faithful, will be nourished in solitude by pastors with the word of God for all the time of the Antichrist, with Elias and Henoch battling against him. In the same way was the synagogue nourished by Mattathiah and the Maccabees in the desert as it fled the persecutions of Antiochus. And he refers this to the first book of Maccabees, chapter 2, verse 29. Morally, John here teaches the faithful that they must be firm and long-suffering in persecution. Now, this very fine translation, if I might say so myself, is uh, very enlightening. But nowhere does this mention anything about St. John the Apostle being the wings here. But it mentions uh, fathers of the church talking about the wings applying in various ways. They give quite a few options, quite a few interpretations, right? But uh, the commentator Cornelius Alapide tries to reconcile and bring them all together. Um, and I think he, he does so admirably, covering an uh, enormous amount of ground there, an enormous amount of history, an enormous amount of commentary from others before him. Uh, I found it rather startling how different his interpretation and the Father's interpretation is from uh, Father Kramer's view of uh, an airplane <laughs> uh, carrying, whisking the leaders of the church away from Rome to safety in a, in a desert place, in a, a world, in a, in a country that was never Christian, uh, formally, never formally Christian. So in any case, or at least never formally Catholic. So anyway, I think that was all worth reading, and I think the reason why it was worth reading is because of the spiritual meaning that all of the Catholic commentaries, at least so many of them, have applied the spiritual meaning of this. And I thought that what they had to say was very encouraging. It should be very encouraging to those who love God and have true faith, that God will be with us and protect us through all of this, even providing the wings of an eagle. Um, we interpret that in a spiritual sense, in a very elevated sense, but... Uh, how comforting it is to know that God will provide that, to lift us above all of this, uh, all of this chaos and confusion and faithlessness of earth, that we will be able to soar as with the wings of an eagle. Faith, right? Above all that. Right. So, in any case, Tom, in any ways, any, I wanted to uh, make sure that we um, took advantage of the labor that went into this and responding to that question as well as I could. Sure. Yeah. Well, Father, thanks for being here tonight. We covered a lot of grounds. Uh, 
answered quite a few emails. So thank you for your time. Well, Tom, thank you very much. And I thank the uh, viewership for their perseverance and their patience and ask for their prayers and thank them for all of their support in every way. God bless you all. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.